This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia, where you can now study single module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in a full university degree. To find out more, head to open.edu.au. This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, we're speaking to John Yeo. He's a professional speaker consultant. He's also the curator of TEDx Melbourne, and he teaches us about how to avoid the fear of public speaking and how to tell a more engaging and effective message through speech. And we talk about what makes a really great speech. And finally, we talk about TED, the global conference. John has been a number of times. He's met some very notable people, but I bet you can't guess who his favorite TED Talk is by. All that's coming up next on Mate. So who are you and what do you do? So my name's John Yeo. I'm an executive speaker coach. So I work with executives to build uh, brand stories that are connect and engage. But I'm also the curator for TEDx Melbourne, which is the Melbourne license for TED in Melbourne. Been doing that for about eight years. Excellent. We're going to talk about TEDx Melbourne a little bit later on, but I did want to start off with... Uh, your description there, an executive speaker coach. Mm. Um, I was looking through your LinkedIn profile in preparation for this uh, episode and <laughs> a lot of your uh, career options didn't kind of lead up to, to well, it wasn't an obvious transition to speaker coaching. They were kind of very like technical yeah. jobs at IT organizations, essentially. Yeah, so absolutely. T- tell me about that, that journey. Yeah, it was an interesting one. And yeah, I mean, I think it's, my generation will always have probably seven completely different careers anyway and I think the younger generations will have way more than that but actually what I did at a very basic level has always been the same I began in IT Um, one of the first projects that I did back then was uh, Y2K if anyone remembers what that was (laughs) but essentially it was a very complex scenario now back then there was no CTO or CIO so in order for a technician or an IT person to get a message to the senior executive was very very difficult On top of that, they weren't used to speaking to senior executives. So they used to give overly complicated answers. I was one of the few engineers that could simplify a message in a way that an executive could understand. And so that skill I built way back in the 90s really still translates to the work I do today. I just happen to be not doing it in only IT. It's interesting. I think uh, when we look over careers or decisions about life in general, it's really easy to connect the dots and, and draw the lines um, looking backwards because <laughs> it's like, oh, well, this is the part that I, of that job that I'm using now today. But looking forward, you can never predict where you're going to end up. It's fascinating, isn't it? Sometimes they're opportunistic. Sometimes they're planned. I'm not the planning type of guy. So I guess in some respects, I was led to where I was. But what I was really cognizant of the whole time was what lights me up and what gets me most engaged. And I always stuck with that. And it was the main reason why I sort of quit a lot of jobs. They weren't lighting me up as a human being. And so I think that consistency with me, regardless of the job or the industry I was in, has always been inherent. And I think that part of it has enabled me to do what I do today because of that reason. So what does light you up? Ideas. I love love the fact that um, an idea can change the world and that someone who's passionate and vigorous about chasing that in an unrelenting way can achieve extraordinary things. One of my favorite quotes is, um, if one advances confidently in the direction of their dreams, they'll 
see success unexpected in common hours. And um, it, it always resonated with me, that statement, because it, it really stood the test of time of what Bill Gates calls intense focus. And, you know, you can achieve a, a lot of things with that type of focus. Let's, you know, connect some of those dots and, and, uh, and I guess, kind of transition to what you're doing today, which you've been doing for how many years? So, TEDx Melbourne I've been doing for eight years. This process I've been doing since the 90s, but really as a business, I've probably only been doing maybe four or five years. And this is speaker coaching? Yeah. Apart from yourself, I've never met a speaker coach before. Yeah. So, what the hell do you do? I don't do? think you become one. I, I, <laughs> it's not a degree or anything, obviously. Most people who are speaker coaches come from performing arts. So, they totally understand how to get people's engagement and to hold their attention. But what I found when I was looking for speaker coaches for TEDx Melbourne was they had deep technical roles. And so, these creative performing arts people didn't have a sense of the technical significance of the language they had. They really struggled to help people get a sense of the structure and form of what really makes a great talk. They just had lots of clever tips and techniques around, I don't know, how to manage your vocal cords or how do you manage your nerves, which are also important, but are not the talk. And so as an, well, I have a sort of an analytical background. So one of the things I did was I said, well, let's take the best of that, deconstruct what I feel works really well on the talks that I've seen and see if I can find a framework around that. And I was very adamant that it wouldn't be a formula because the moment you have formulas, that's when things start sounding the same. So I was looking for, a, I guess, a principle or principles by which made speaking more effective on stage. And so I actually narrowed it down to nine things. And from there, I've used that as a basis for extending all the other models and training that I have with my speakers. So it's, it's, it's a technical approach to how you quantify the value an audience has when they listen to you speak. So what's more important, the vocal cord warm-up or the, the getting over the nerves or the actual, con- you know, the, the delivery, I suppose, or the content of what you're speaking about? Is there one that's more, than, more important than the other? Uh, no, there isn't one that's more important. I, th- I think it's a dynamic. For instance, if you are um, trying to learn something, then a lesson-type format, a lecture, a lesson, where someone stands at the front and just says a whole bunch of stuff and you write it down and make sure you get it, is completely appropriate for a class. Where that's inappropriate is on a short talk format in particular, where you don't have a lot of time to build rapport engagement and if you're too technical, it can be seen as dry and boring and uninteresting. So you've got to be able to balance that. And I think that's one of the strengths of TED as a brand is they've always been able to balance that relevance, which is the content and the engagement, which the performing artists know, and blend it in a way that creates just enough interest, but just enough technical information. And so I've spent almost 10 years exploring that dynamic. It sounds like one of the most important things actually is know thy audience. Yes. And tailor the way you present your message to obviously what you're speaking about, but also who you're speaking to. Absolutely. If you had to do a talk that said, what do you do at work? The way you describe that to your local kindergarten versus the way you describe that same topic to the chair of the board, completely different. Even the preparation is different. Mm. So the question is, who is your audience? What is their level of knowledge and experience? And how do you adapt or language it in a way that's going to be most accessible to them? I find that really fascinating as well because um, 
before we started recording, one of the questions you asked was, you know, is there a, like a particular tone or kind of way of presenting that you want me to speak to uh, during this this interview? And uh, I had not had any interview guest ask me that before. No. <laughs> well, I mean, tone and position is really important in communication. Yeah. It's, it's one thing to have something that's, that's, that you feel is relevant, but it's a whole other thing for the audience to feel that it's relevant to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was speaking to a group of executives this morning. I was trying to explore with them why content is not king, which is an interesting one because you speak to a lot of marketers, that's the first thing they'll say. Content is king. I think that's oversimplified. Content is super important, but if no one's going to listen to it, ain't going to help anybody. So you've you've got to find that that right blend. And so when you say content is king, I think you're missing an opportunity to build a relationship and a rapport that a lot of brands miss out on. Again, marketing often very keen to say stuff like features and benefits. But let's think about this. If you have all the features and benefits, but your reputation as an organization is dodgy, doesn't matter about the feature and benefits. Mm. So I have what I call the five levels of understanding in terms of the way people interact with you. And the first one is the environment that you're in. So for instance... In the environment, people are looking at things that are relevant to them and not relevant to them because we get thousands of marketing messages a day or any sort of messages. It's not even marketing ones, emails, phone calls, friends and family. Just inputs in general. Absolutely. So we've got to be able to say, well, what's going on in my world and how? what do I know about that? If someone wants to interact with you at the environmental level, the only two things that count are thought leadership and reputation. That's the environmental scan. At that point... They might go, well, who's doing a good job or where could I get the best, I don't know, phone or stereo or sofa? It doesn't really matter. They're always looking at, at a generalization. At that point, they'll identify an organization that might be able to do that. Let's say it's Apple or whatever, furniture store, I don't care what you call it. You know, which Then when they walk into the organization, they meet individuals. And is that individual in their face? Are they friendly? Are they approachable? Do they feel that they have competence? Do you have rapport? Only at that point can you start talking about your product, service, or idea. And the problem is that I see is a lot of marketing starts with the product, service, or idea. Mm. And they've missed all the other opportunities to engage, some of which are not even directly engaged with your brand or market. The environment might be stuff like what your neighbor says, what your friends say, what you've seen in the news. And you need to be able to manage and control those experiences as much as you can. And I think you can. Apple does this every single day. So, okay, product, service, and idea. Even then, people won't necessarily buy unless there's two things happening. The timing's right. And they feel that what they're doing is a good idea. Now, how they define good is a whole bunch of things. But this is where Apple was genius. They could design a phone or any other product, to be honest. Say it's coming out on this day. And their community would camp outside their store for three, four days, not even knowing whether the product was any good. Mm -hmm. Why? They did that because they got the sense that Apple understood what they were wanting, what they desired, what they were trying to achieve. They just happened to be selling a phone or an iPod or a computer. Yeah, there's like an inherent level of trust, I think, that uh, Apple consumers have with, with the brand. It's the main reason they've got the largest market cap on the planet, even mm. though they've only got 16% market share. Mm. It's genius. It's, it's funny. We're talking about uh, things that are almost like 
just general like marketing advice or even just general good business advice. <laughs> Great communication is universal. Yeah. If you happen to be marketing, then you apply the principles of that great communication. But it doesn't really matter. Great communication is relevant whether it's a corridor conversation, a weekly meeting, the marketing campaign. Great communication is great communication. Let's go a little bit deeper on uh, communicating on stage. Because I think when people think of, you know, speaker coaching and and, or just speaking in general, they think of, you know, the TED stage or the, the big keynote at some sort of a conference that they're seeing. Let's have a think about what happens when you're preparing for a talk. When you're preparing for a talk, there are three distinct phases. There's the development phase. What am I going to put in there? What are the components? What is the order I want to say them? Fairly straightforward. Then the next phase is I need to memorize it. And so they spend time memorizing it or not. And it might not be word for word memorization. It might be just I need to say this thing and then this thing. It might be a handful of bullet points for all we know. But they need to have a sort of a sense of what they want to say. And then the third phase, which is around delivery, how you deliver in a way that effectively connects and engages with their audience. Less than 3% of speakers that I'm aware of actually plan for that. Did you say 3%? Yeah. Yeah, wow. We just go, I'm going to memorize it and just go out and say it verbatim, which is why so many talks you listen to are really annoying or boring or uninteresting. Mm -hmm. Because all they've done is memorize what they're going to say and say it. But that's not communication. That's just speaking at people. Mm. And you know what? Speaking is the worst way to share information. Mm -hmm. If you want to share information, record it, send it out on video or type it and send it out on email, put it on a blog or whatever. It scales, it's much more efficient, and it doesn't require you to be there. If you want to be an information dissemination portal, don't speak. In fact, even if you put it up, someone can Google it anyway. So even being a subject matter expert no longer counts anymore because you can Google it. The question then is, what is a speaker's responsibility in that communication? And it's all about engagement, how you engage and build rapport with that listener. Mm. I'd almost challenge the uh, the one two three steps that you uh, that you presented there in terms of the order. I think almost you have to consider the audience uh, at step two or perhaps even step one. You yeah. actually start with the audience and go, "All right, well, what kind of content does this audience want to or yeah. rece- are they receptive to?" Totally. And then you can actually think about the ideas, the concepts that you are you're going to impart. Yeah, uh, and then maybe you do. The audience step again. Yeah. Uh, and then you go, okay, cool. What's the best way of presenting it to them? So perhaps it's totally. actually the order of the steps is three, one, three, two, uh, well, in terms of what you were saying before. They're actually not steps. They're just phases that people tend to go through as, sure. a, as, as a general when they're preparing for a speech. As a marketer, you would understand absolutely that personas and all as avatars and all the other words you want to use are absolutely critical in terms of identifying and building in your mind how you might set that communication up. And as marketing people, absolutely. But for speakers, that is definitely not the case. So they're just phases. They don't have to be linear, but they're just phases that people often think about. And the third one that I mentioned was the one that most people ignore mm. as a speaker. The model that I that you were referring to in terms of the nine elements, there's a few things going on in there. And it takes a long time to do the whole model. It's 26 hours to do the whole model. So I'm going to try and give you like a, <laughs> like a very express version of it. So 
Um, the first key one is, is topic. What, what are you going to say? What are the components? And that's not that hard. What is interesting is in relation to that and the audience. So I'll give you an example. We had a guy who was on our stage who was literally a Nigerian gun runner, and he applied to go on our stage. And he said, I tried to hand myself into the police. I told them everything because I wanted to hand myself in. It sounded so outrageous. They thought I was making it up, so they told me to go away. So he, he went away and he gathered all these news stories and he said, see all these news stories, they look like separate instances, but they're actually all related. I can tell you how they're related because they're the causes of or repercussions of my gang's work. I'd like to hand myself in and they told him to go away again. <laughs> so the third time he went away and he did, uh, he took, uh, what was it, 2,000 hours community service within a year, 2,000 hours, and documented all the cases the police hadn't caught him for, 974 of them, and handed that back. Took them three months to process the information, but at the end they said, all right, we believe you now. You have a full pardon. Mm-hmm. Go away. <laughs> that was his application, which is a pretty wild story. And uh, this is where if we get sucked into content is king, that's a fascinating story. Yeah. But what do you want people to take away? What do you want them to remember or learn? There isn't, What's the lesson? There's nothing there, right? So we had a bit more of a chat and we came across the code. And I said, well, what's the code do? And he says, well, if you want the accuser to work with the mafia, to work with the triads, they've all got to agree on the code. I said, what happens if you don't? He says, anybody at any level can take you out. No questions asked. And so I said, are you allowed to tell me what the code is? He says, yeah, it's not that complicated. He says, if you, if you say you're going to do something, you've got to go do it no matter what. Uh, if your brother is in trouble, you've got to go help him no matter what. Do not exploit women. Do not exploit children. And under no circumstances ever exploit the poor because a lot of them came from poor backgrounds. I said, what about the women and children? He says, it creates too many clan wars, creates too much attention. So I said to him, why don't we go about it this way? Imagine living in a world where people did what they said they were going to do, but if you ever got in trouble, you knew you'd have a backup. A world that didn't exploit women or children or the poor. Then what sort of world can we live in? At which point, who's the criminal? (laughs) Fundamentally, we have people with the same values that have unfortunately chosen wrong behaviours. And we've incarcerated people rather than their behaviours. Mm. And uh, I was explaining this to a child psychologist and he was chuckling to himself. And I said, what's so funny? He goes, oh, that's Parenting 101. (laughs) (laughs) He says, when you have a problem child, you don't attack the child. You address their thinking and their attitudes and therefore the behaviors that are the repercussions of that. And you address the behaviors first, which I find ironic because, you know, we treat adults completely differently. Mm. And so while we might have an audience that would be interested in a gun runner story, maybe 30% of our audience might be interested in a gun runner story. Maybe 80% of our audience would be interested in a world that's a better place. And so how do we set up the idea that appeals to as many people in the room as possible so that you can initiate the next step of what's the next part of the conversation? Then what happened? All great communication creates curiosity and intrigue. And all great advertising and marketing does exactly the same. It's enough for them to go, I want to find out more. Because you know what? You can't sell someone on a 30-second jingle. Mm. But you can establish an opportunity to have another conversation and to build a relationship. And I think that's what Apple's done extremely well. That's why they have the stores. People walk in, walk out, don't buy anything. That's fine. They're okay with that. Mm -hmm. Because it's an opportunity to build an ongoing trust relationship where they now have the highest retail density per square meter in the world. Mm -hmm. Because people explicitly trust the people and the products that they produce. Yeah, Apple's one of the uh, the only retail establishments that doesn't have um, sales metrics attached to each employee. You know, you have to sell, you know, $1,000 worth of product today or whatever. Yeah, it's brilliant. 
you can just talk to people and you can actually talk them out of a more expensive product and into a less expensive product. In fact, that's encouraged if that meets the customer's needs better. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And I would argue that Ted as a brand does that in general as well. I, I think that's one of the strengths of that. I mean, you know, they didn't invent the short talk. They didn't invent the video. What they've been able to do is connect and engage a community in a way that no one else has ever been able to do it. Mm. They took an event where it cost between eight and $120,000 per ticket to attend and decided to give the content away for free. Mm-hmm. Then they decided in 2005, the same year YouTube started, to launch a video. You know how many people were watching videos online at that time? Basically no one. And then in 2009, not only do that, but give away free licenses to organizers all around the world to create their own TED-like experiences. And what has that done for the brand, for the community engagement, the number of ideas you see, the cross-pollination of communities? It's immeasurable. Because the things that we've always hold as sacred, they decided, what if they weren't? And that's a powerful question. Mm. What if it wasn't? What if every assumption that you have was wrong? Then what sort of world are you living in? It comes back to my original point about the power of ideas. To get us to think, I never thought about it that way. Or that's curious. Or I learned something about myself. I might do it differently. Because the moment you unseat the fixed in our mind, anything is possible. It's a nice soundbite. Um, <laughs> you know what? I was just uh, I was just thinking. It's really funny that we uh, we're still on number one of the nine. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you know why it takes twenty six hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's a really nice taste of it that you've yep. kind of given us there. So, I do want to ask you though before we move on about fear. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes ever about speaking is the human brain works. From the moment you were born right up until the moment you stand up to speak. <laughs> I love it. I've never heard that one. That's awesome. <laughs> and then you you just get a mind blank yeah. and just don't know where you're going to go and what you're going to yeah. say. I've done some talks before and I've, I've done a TEDx uh, yeah. Melbourne talk. And there, there is sometimes that moment where you just go, shit, what, like, what am I? Yeah. Oh, crap. What am I going to say? But once you get some momentum and, and, and you're kind of off and running, yeah. then, then you're good to go. Yeah. But I do want to ask you about fear because what do you yeah. recommend to people when they're, when they're going through? Like, that's a big yeah. hurdle that a lot of speakers Absolutely. deal with. Absolutely. You, may, you raise a great point. So, there is an inverse relationship between fear and logic. So, if you're highly emotional, you are also likely to be highly illogical. It's why you can't make sense of those people, those those fanatics that you just can't convince because they're highly emotional. Mm -hmm. Their logic just goes out the window. So, you know, the moment you step on stage and that fear is so high, you will lose your logic, which basically means what will I say next, which is a logical thing to ask, right? There's a couple of things to think about when it comes to fear. One is the physical aspect. One is the psychological aspect. The psychological aspect is that if you actually have fear, first of all, it means you care. And I will always take because you care when you have the other option of indifferent. There's nothing worse than an indifferent person on stage. So that's the first part of that. Second thing, I think there's always a degree of trepidation and that is proportional to the importance that speaker gives to that particular moment. So it's relative and you get to choose. If you were, for instance, playing in a sporting arena, 
you might start with C grade. If they threw you into A grade, you'd be out of your element. But there is a possibility to build the skill set to get up to A grade. And the same still counts for speaking. Speaking is a skill. It can be learned. So that's the psychological but almost functional description of that. The practical way to apply that or or to prepare for that is really just be as prepared as possible Mm. and practice as much as possible. And there's stages of practice, which I won't go into now. But one of the things that people often do that is a mistake is, is not understanding who they're asking for their opinion when they hear your talk. A lot of people just go and ask their friends and family. Now, friends and family or colleagues. Friends, family and colleagues are all what I call friendly audiences. Mm. Now, um, Very supportive. Yeah. No tough feedback. or Exactly. Yeah. And they won't even give you that much granularity. They go, what do you think of the talk? It was good. Or I wanted to know a bit more about this, but I thought it was good. That's not granular enough to really perfect your talk. There's a second type of audience, and they have the audience that have never heard of you. And they take a bit more convincing. Mm-hmm. And you should practice in front of them too. And then there's the third audience, and they're actually my favorite type of audience. They're the audience that know who you are but vehemently disagree with about what you're going to say. Now, the importance of that type of audience is they will always challenge your delivery. They'll always challenge your assumptions. They'll always challenge your values. They'll always challenge your model. If you can't make it past that third type of audience, then your idea isn't sound. And you should actually actively go and pursue that with one caveat. And the only caveat is don't try and practice your talks until you have memorized your talk. In other words, you know what you're going to say. And there's a reason for that. Because if you design your talk based on community feedback, you'll get a talk that sounds like it was designed by a committee. Mm. <laughs> it's still got to be your voice and your opinion. Yeah. And there's nothing to say you can't reposition or reset the way you say it or the position you take. But you've got to be solid in terms of what you believe about your idea. Because otherwise you'll just take the safest route. Safe is boring. It is. I want to ask you about TED. Mm-hmm. You've been to uh, TED a, a couple of times. And yeah. By a couple, I mean more than yeah. a couple. Yeah. But <laughs> we we're adding it yeah. up before we started recording. Eight it was or maybe, 10 or yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a Quite number. A it's yeah. a lot. Let's. But, but before we jump into some of my questions, what's like? Give me the the one sentence summary of what TED is for for anybody who's been living under a rock their whole life and hasn't <laughs> heard of a TED talk. Yeah. Uh, what is it? So TED began as a conference in 1984. Is it that old? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, so they, they, they began as, as, as an organization where three people from three separate industries, technology, entertainment, and design, all were realizing there was a convergence on their industries, and they wanted to talk about it. So it actually began as sort of a, not a private conversation, but certainly one that was more specific. Obviously, today, the talks are very much broader than actors, performers, philanthropists, researchers, scientists. All sorts of people come and speak on that stage. But the premise underneath that, regardless of their background, is ideas worth spreading. The critical word being worth spreading. So a lot of, lot of ideas out there. I get hundreds and hundreds of people pitching ideas at me. But what is it about that idea that's going to cause it to spread? It's going to cause someone to go, that's a really interesting idea. I'm going to tell my mate or my friend or whatever. And... There is a real fine art in terms of designing a communication to make it interesting enough for people to want to spread it. So that's that's the big distinction between what I think for a TED conference and any other event that happens to run out there that has speakers. 
you mentioned a few kind of categories of speakers there. They've had politicians, world leaders, philanthropists, famous musicians, actors, you know, anybody who's anybody, there'll be somebody from that category that's spoken at TED. But getting to TED is not just based on your status. No, it's really interesting. So, they do, and we do a similar thing, but um, they ask a whole bunch of questions to understand the individual. And they want to understand two things. What is it that makes you interesting and how do you think that's going to contribute to the community conversation? Because they're they're really interested in, in lots of great ideas bumping up against each other. And there's a very Darwinian process around how ideas, I feel, expand. Uh, The other one is really around what is the nature of the relationship you have with the brand and the people in the room? They don't care if it's controversial or adversarial. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for someone who says, this is what I believe. This is what I stand for. This is what I know I'm about. And therefore, no matter what happens in that room, we all will honestly and respectfully and openly discuss that position until we run out of time. And, you know, that's the funny bit because you know, the conference goes, let's say, nine to five. It actually doesn't quite work that way, but I won't go into that now. There will still be people from five o'clock to four in the morning <laughs> still talking about these ideas. Yeah. And then they'll go have a couple of hours, kip, come get up and have breakfast, go for a run together, and then carry on as if nothing happened. And they might have been vehemently arguing with it with each other the night before it's brilliant yeah what that's one of the magical things that i've that i've heard about ted it may have been you that told me about it you know the, the magic of going to ted is not the talks themselves it's all the bits that happen in between and the Absolutely. really interesting discussions that you get to have with people who you maybe know or people you've never heard of um, who have just really compelling or interesting or controversial ideas. Yeah. One of the things I remember you telling me years ago was that uh, the the process to actually go to TED as an audience member, there's a whole process, you you know, application form, like it's... there's obviously a, a fairly expensive fee you have to pay for a ticket as well. I think it's about eight thousand or ten thousand yep. dollars or something. Eight and a half US. It's about ten. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's not an insignificant cost. It's also not a ridiculous cost in the grand scheme of conferences. But you know, it's there's a kind of minimum bar entry you have to meet. But that doesn't guarantee you a ticket there. No, it doesn't. Just because you have got the money doesn't mean you get in the room. Like I said, they're much more interested in the ideas you have, and the conversations that be that can be created in there that's much more important to them because that's where the the rigorous conversation around ideas grow Uh, if you put a lot of ideas in a very small space they can't not bump up against each other and not be challenged and have their corners knocked off or be polished to be better ideas and i i think that's sort of the generalized loose model around how they play with ideas within that space it's um i was making this correlation the other day with um someone about uh, Darwin and his theory of evolution, that the tortoises and the birds he was studying in the centre of the archipelago were evolving faster than the ones around the edges. And the reason was because they were being exposed to the cross-currents of all those other species in the centre of the archipelago and being forced to evolve faster than the ones around the edges. And ideas are exactly the same. Speaking of speakers, um, Chris Anderson, the head curator, I think is his, his yes. title, uh, head curator of TED. I don't think he's the best speaker. No. He's, he's very um, 
awkward on stage yeah. uh, when he's introducing, um, you know, topics and speakers, and he reads from these weird cue cards that are on like a yeah. little um, on like ring. a ring. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like this guy's meant to be the head of like the most prestigious um, organization in terms of you know ideas. speeches, ideas, yeah. whatever. Like yeah. the some of the best talks that we've ever seen in the world. Um, some of have yep. come from Ted. Yeah. What's the deal with uh, with Chris? So Chris, as a personality, he's quite possibly the biggest introvert I've ever met. Right. That explains a lot. When you get him in a room of about twenty people, he lights up. He's on fire. He's connecting. He's engaging. He's got charisma. He's actually quite a brilliant man, but only in certain circumstances, and one is not in big crowds. <laughs> in front of uh, in front of big cameras and audiences, because <laughs> yeah. they're because they're broadcasting a lot of the opening speech. You know, I went to, to the um, to the theater. They broadcast uh, the opening couple of speeches, and they did like a highlights thing uh, this year as well, which was a, a new initiative. And they do it to all these theaters around the world. And so Chris, like, he does this moment where he looks directly at camera, and he's like, "And for the TED audience in the theaters, thanks TED Cinema, thanks for coming along." But I don't know, it's just weird. He's just yeah. kind of awkward. Yeah, that's not his thing. <laughs> He, he's the he's the curator. He's not the idea generator himself, obviously. Although he has ideas, he has many. What is interesting to Ted, I think, is it's an an opportunity for any idea, for anyone, regardless of their personal status. I mean, you have children on stage. Not that there's anything to say, children are less, but you know, people you wouldn't expect, I guess, and gives them a platform to share an idea. Because it's got some degree of remarkableness to it. Remarkable is, in many respects, um, subjective. But, you know, in terms of the law of averages, billion views a year, they're doing something right. They're doing a few things right, I think. (laughs) Who's the most notable person you've met at TED? Hans Rosling is probably the main one, which everyone loves. He unfortunately just passed away this year. You know, Simon Sinek. John Hunter did the World Peace Game. Multi-million dollar view. No one's probably heard of him, but just a great concept. Um, there's there's a bunch of those, a lot of those sorts of people that I that I felt that I had the most meaningful relationships or conversations with, because they were not overly egotistical about they. Not that I'm saying those other two were, but you know they weren't there for themselves. They were there because they were genuinely interested in in having their ideas discussed with some of the smartest people in the world. To test whether their idea really had some, some, something underneath it. Yeah. So, following on from who was the most notable, who has most surprised you? I really enjoy Juan Enriquez. He's able to take very complex ideas and make us think about them at a significance that you thought, I would not have thought about that. But now I'm either frightened slash scared slash interested slash <laughs> fascinated by what you've just said in a way that I wouldn't if I hadn't seen you present your idea. So he's probably the best one to to use as that example. How do you think he does that? He is a great communicator, as we just mentioned. He is able to distill complex ideas very simply and he's able to do it in a very natural, matter-of-fact way in terms of delivery that makes it easy to absorb. That's probably the key elements. 
And then the last uh, kind of really deep and meaningful question, John, is what's the most transformative idea that you've heard at TED? Hmm. That's really tricky. I think for almost everyone, the most transformative one is the first TED talk they ever see. Really? Okay. And so, because that's the one you would, it's totally out of the, uh, that one totally blows your mind and surprises you. And for me, that was Jill Bolton Taylor, which was actually the, I think it was the first TED talk ever to go online. Uh, that blew my mind about the way we view the world, the way we view ourselves, the way we, and, and there were things in there that she explained that no one else has ever been able to explain to me. And I suddenly understood because these are personal experiences I couldn't describe to anyone else. But she seemed to be able to explain it in a way to go, that's exactly what I had. I can, I, not that I had a brain stroke like she did, but you know, there were certain things she was describing that went, oh, that finally makes sense. So I think that was probably the most profound or transformative in that sense. And the other one is probably my favorite talk, which is two minutes and 34 seconds called Weird or Just Different. Mm-hmm. Now, on the face of it, it's a very simple, unpretentious, very simple looking talk. But the profoundness of it is, again, what if we were wrong? And all great, in fact, no great idea comes from the space where we're at. It comes from somewhere completely left field. And this talk really encourages to set aside our assumptions and look for the surprising in not only the everyday, but also overturn our assumptions about what is correct or incorrect, in inverted commas. Is that the talk by Derek Sivers? It is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, I'm going to I'm gonna pop some uh, links in the show notes. Um, so, in the description for this episode, you can find links to all of these wonderful talks. Yeah. Uh, so, that you can go and watch them and go down the click hole that is Ted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tim Ferriss does some brilliant interviews with Derek Sivers as well. You should dig those up too. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. And Tim Ferriss, another really interesting talk yeah. uh, this year about stoicism. And Yes. Oh, he's uh, always been big about that one. <laughs> he just got a stage this time. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he did. I think it was probably about time that Tim Ferriss got, yeah. a, got a TED Talk, though. This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia. With Open Unis, you now have the flexibility of studying single-module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in an entire degree. So, this is perfect if you're a busy professional, um, you don't have to go to night school or anything like that. This is a brand new initiative that Open Unis has created, which allows you to upskill for your current role or maybe take the first steps towards a new one. And they have a really broad range of subjects that you can learn about. Things like technology essentials for managers or financial decision-making or perhaps if you just want to learn something new, maybe you could study cyber terrorism and information warfare or democracy and dictatorship. There's over 100 units to choose from on topics from business to economics, technology, media to law. There's so many more. So instead of going to night school, why not work in a way that's flexible for you Uh, You can work in your own time and learn about some really fascinating topics. To find out more about how to study a single unit from a leading Australian university with Open Universities Australia, head to open.edu.au. And thank you very much to Open Unis for your support of MATE.
So, you spoke a little bit earlier on about TEDx events around the world and how TED has given kind of the, passed the baton from um, this kind of exclusive, very special event where all the rich and famous, well, not exactly, but so it seems the rich and famous. Well healed and well to do. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, They get to go along to this amazing um, event and, and, but they've passed the baton to hundreds of people from around the world. Yeah. And uh, and one of those is TEDx Melbourne and you're the curator of TEDx Melbourne. Mhm. Basically the idea is that individual events around the world get to create their own little micro TED events. They can, you know, get their own speakers and generate their own audiences and they can kind of, you know, like in Melbourne there's one coming up. Well, you maybe talk about it, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but but I before you tell me what TEDx Melbourne this year is about. Mm. Tell me why you're involved with TEDx Melbourne. I think at the biggest level, it's the same tribe that goes to the TED event. Open, educated, passionate, and willing to vigorously discuss ideas to the point, well, really sometimes to the extreme, to really consider all of the ideas from every single angle in order to make a best case to whether it is something that they want to take on or ignore. And so, one of the things I love about TED audiences, they never say, no, that can't be done. I've never had a TED to say that to me. They've always said, that's an amazing idea. Have you spoken to this person? Or can I introduce you to this person? Or have you read this book? Or check out this research. It'll help you explore that in a much deeper way. That doesn't exist in any other audience that I know. So in many respects, I'm involved not only as a curator, but as a fan. It's my tribe and I love being around them. Yeah, so it's like a, a selfish, self-fulfilling prophecy. You, yeah. you create this thing that you want to go to. In fact, I think a Absolutely. lot of entrepreneurs or you know, change makers or, or people who are um, you know, creating things, they create the thing that they want to see. They, they create the thing that they want to exist. Absolutely. There's that old saying, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. I think, um, you know, I create podcasts that I wish existed and that I want to hear. And I really, the, the interviews that I conduct are with people that I just want to get more interesting ideas from. Mm. Um, and the fact that there's, you know, a couple of hundred people or a few thousand people that listen to that as well is kind of just a bonus. Mm. A lot of the questions that I'm asking you is just things that... I'm interested to hear about. <laughs> yeah, so cool. So TEDx Melbourne, um, what's the plan for TEDx Melbourne this year? So uh, September 19, Melbourne Convention Centre, expecting at least 1,300 people. Wow, that's sorry to interrupt. That's grown a lot since uh, yeah, since yeah, I came. Yeah, yeah. So when you were there, it was probably about 400 and around there. For context, I spoke at TEDx Melbourne in 2010. Was it? Okay. All right. Good Good memory. Yeah. <laughs> I should have looked this up. Um, so, I spoke at TEDx Melbourne, uh, you know, seven years ago and uh, it, it was it was, it was was great experience and, uh, and I learned a lot from that and it was really, really interesting. Uh, and I've been to a couple of TEDx Melbourne events as well. So, I'm just going to maybe say on the record that the TEDx Melbourne audience has just exploded since I spoke there, you know, where that was like the tipping point where everyone started to hear about it after yeah. I was there. There's a couple of things in there. We, we spent You're a just l- going to ignore that and move on. <laughs> well, that, the, the, fact, the, the fact that that crowd there is nice. I mean, I'm not, not denying I love them there and I'd love to have more people there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think they are there because we spend an awful lot of time getting to understand them, what motivates them, what drives them, what their intrinsic motivators are. We ask them stuff 
like, you know, what are you most proud of and what are websites that represent you as human beings? If you can understand the intrinsic motivators of your organization as much as your extrinsic ones, like do they like your product or service, it gives you a much better opportunity to build a relationship with them by designing experiences around them that appreciate their particular lines of interest. And so this year's theme, Rebels, Revolutionaries and Us, is really just the summary of all the data that people have said this would be cool to explore. And as much as I'd like to take credit for, you know, the theme or the speakers or production or anything, the fact is that it, it, it's, it's crowdsourced. The, the, the team's voluntary. I'm voluntary. The topics and the speakers are all voluntary. We come together and say, what would we do, need to do to create the most amazing experience we can think of that just happens to be a conference? Yeah. So, I want to bring it full circle and kind of bring us back to topic number one, which is speaker coaching. Um, and, you know, given that you're volunteering your time and expertise as a curator to TEDx Melbourne to basically build a tribe that you wished existed, that's yeah. kind of a nice real summary of this whole chat, right? Sure. And to bring it full circle, what, what kind of advice are you giving the speakers yeah. that you are selecting to go on that TEDx stage on September 19? Sure. So, the amount of preparation required is varies on three things. The clarity of their message, because if they're not clear, we have to work that out first. Their degree of comfort speaking in front of 1,300 people. And the experience they have to date around preparing and delivering a talk. So, there are three things that we're focused on. From there, that will determine how much time I spend with them or required to speak to them. And so, that, those, that range is anywhere between 8 and 26 hours per person. From there, we help them design an experience in a way that is not only... Uh, Natural, in other words, unlabored and unmechanical. I don't think anyone's ever said our speeches sound like they're, you know, memorized. But how do we design for experience as opposed to design for content dissemination? And if we focus on the experience the audience members have, then it might be, you know, the way we deliver that would be different for each speaker. You know, we've had people coming on dancing and singing and we've had people just kind of just walk on and just say it and walk off. We've had people sort of be very engaging and humorous. Because that is who they are. And until we honor the individual underneath the idea, we can never respectfully draw out what drives them and what excites them about the idea. And the reason for that is, at that point, if you just get them to say what they know, they're being intellectual about their idea. And we can't afford to do that on our stage and rely on that as the only reason people like the idea. Why not? Because you've got 18 minutes. Now, on video, they'll decide in the first three to seven seconds whether they're going to click close or not. Mm -hmm. Our job is to make sure that that opening in particular, but also throughout the talk, is as fascinating and as engaging as possible. By simplifying the message, by creating an interesting dynamic, by challenging our audience to think, and bringing them along in a way that they might not have considered if they hadn't sat down in that room or watched that video before. And that whole story craft or the brand experience, what do you want to call it, is really critical to that. If we're just worried about content, we're in trouble. Because like I said, content you can Google. I think this is the big difference that TED has compared to other um, conferences or speeches or you know just online videos or whatever, like other ways of communicating 
it's just much more engaging on that. And they, you know, the speakers distill down their their idea into something that is interesting or provocative or humorous or or whatever, right? Like, and yeah. they have a very there's a number of different ways of imparting that. Sometimes yeah. it is very humorous. Sometimes there's no dialogue at all. It's just yeah. a, a performance art. But I think this is something that Ted does. Re- the, the Ted's, you know, magic secret sauce yeah. is not the 18 minutes. No, you know, it's, not. it's It's what happens in those 18 minutes. Yeah. And so, you know, as I mentioned before, we're always balancing this spectrum of relevance and engagement. In order to do that, you've only got three levers to play with. First one's content. What are you going to say, as I've already mentioned? Mm-hmm. Second one's context, which is really around how do we get people to relate to our idea? And the third one is intent. Now, intent is if no one trusts you, it doesn't matter how good your content is. If someone thinks they're going to get sold to and they're not looking to get sold to, it doesn't matter how good your content is. If someone thinks they're going to be lectured when they sit down, they're not going to listen. So we're always balancing content, context, and intent in a way that builds rapport and engagement. And so all our time is focused on those three elements. And then we just happen to say content or design content that fits into those. What are some of the the levers that you might pull to... um dial up or maybe dial down some of the um, positive or negative aspects of, sure. of each of those. So, there's types of speakers. And so, when you go into a room to prepare with a speaker, you've got a certain sense of what they might bias. For instance, if you have a researcher on stage, they'll pretty much all want to tell you about their research, the academic papers they've, they've written, and the awards they won within their own circles that no one's ever heard of. That's a pure content play. Sure. If you go with a creative, say a performer or an artist, they want to do, it doesn't matter what I say, I just want a free flow. That's fine too, but that's pure context. Mm -hmm. But if you meander and dilly-dally like that for a whole 18 minutes, people will get bored. And the third type of, and this is the one where a lot of business folk or coaching folk or whatever go, all I need to do is tell them that my model and they'll think I'm genius. (laughs) <laughs> or um, all I need to do is do this public service announcement about stopping, I don't know, something happening in some remote location. Like those public service announcements, that's an imbalance of intent. And it's, it's an abuse of Ted's stage, I feel, in terms of why they deserve to be there. So knowing that there's those types of speakers, they all imbalance one of those three elements. The goal for a great TED Talk is to have approximately a nice even balance of all three. And that's not always possible because we still need to respect the individual and what they want to say. But if we can come more to having that dynamic be more even keeled, then you'll trap as many people as you... Not trap. You'll engage as many people as uh, you possibly could by just being who you are. That's a really nice point to finish up on, I think. Cool. What's exciting you right now? Wow, 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 wow. So many things are exciting. I mean, if you're talking about out there things, there's the whole AI, robotics, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, self-driving car thing that's pretty darn cool if you ask me. I, I cannot wait to not have to worry about the commute in the morning. Not that I do it any more than I need to. So that I can actually be more productive and more engaged with what's really interesting to me. So that's the first thing. What's interesting to me internally or sort of motivate me is still around how people uh, connect, engage and share ideas. And so I will continue to work with speakers and leaders around how do they define their story? 
How do they quickly build rapport? And how do they connect and engage in a way that enables people to, to buy into, so to speak, the experience they're creating in a, not only a meaningful way, but a way that has purpose, that, that, that drives value, real value, as opposed to economic value, although that still counts. Do you make your bed in the morning? No. Why not? Because I'll just mess it up in the night. <laughs> it's inefficient. Having said that, my partner, she'll always say, make the damn bed. <laughs> but um, if I had a choice, it, it, I can think of more. Um, I'm driven. When I get up in the morning, I've got so many ideas in my head that I just want to go out and execute. To making my bed's the last thing on my mind. So what is the first thing you do in the morning? Oh, it's not consistent. So ideally, the first thing to do when I do when I wake up in the morning is have a, like a mini meditation. Yeah. Just recenter, rebalance, get a sense of where I am. Because without a center, you can't find your edge. Ooh, that's a good that's a good line. And so, you know, you don't know whether you're pushing yourself or you don't know whether you're going over the line unless you're really centered. It's amazing what happens when you're centered, how much clarity you get. I think the number one challenge so many people have today is they don't really know with deep clarity what they're here to do, what they're about, what then lights them up. And therefore, everything that's distracting and interesting is a nice panacea for their substitute for really not knowing themselves. Yeah, it is hard to know what your calling is, though, because there are so many options. It's a paring down process. It's, it's a process. It's a journey rather than a... Now, some people do get the epiphany. I must admit, I know people that have had epiphanies. And in sometimes I think I have those epiphanies. But the reality is it's a journey. You, you mm. keep paring it down to... What, what excites me most? What are all the other things that are not doing that? And how can I make sure I do less of that? And, you know, some of those projects take me 10 years to offload. Mm. And it changes too. Yes. Yeah, it changes throughout your whole life. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the principles still stay the same. Like what I'm driven by, what excites me, and why I, ch- why I feel I'm here on this planet has never really deviated for me. And what is that? The easiest way to describe it is to... Um, Empower people to reach their full potential and encourage them to do the same for others. John, who should I interview on Mate next? Whoa. There's so many. Um, if you want a brilliant mind, Diane McGrath from, uh, was on our stage a couple of years ago. She's been shortlisted to do the one-way mission to Mars. She's a mind to behold, absolutely. I would say she's your best bet. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like a fascinating discussion. Oh, she has a brain and a mind and a, and a breadth of knowledge and experience that I've never seen in anyone. Well, is she based, is she she's based in Australia? Melbourne? Yeah. Melbourne, okay. Yeah, she's driven, she's focused, she's achievement-oriented, she's brilliant. Could you introduce me? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. I'd love to hear about the inner workings of her mind and oh, it's, the Mars mission and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Great. Well, John, thank you for coming on the show. No worries, Adam. Thanks for listening to Mate. If you'd like to check out the links to the TED Talks that John and I spoke about in today's episode, just tap on the screen on your podcast app right now. Um, It's in the episode description or you can head to matepodcast.com slash 33 for more information. Thank you to Josh Armour for editing today's episode, to Courtney Carmen for designing the show artwork. The Mate theme music is by Nine Inch Nails 
And our ad music is by Ben Sound. For more information about the music used in today's episode, head to matepodcast.com. Now, next week, I'm going to be traveling in the United States. I'm going to be in LA going to Podcast Movement. It's a conference all about podcasting. I hope to learn some amazing things. So, in a future episode, I'll report back about what I learn. Um, I will still be releasing an episode next week. So, make sure you tune in then. But until then, thanks for listening. Bye for now. So, who are you and what do you do? So, I'm John Yo from... Well, I, re- <laughs> I screwed that one up. We'll do one more. <laughs> it's always the second one. You do a good first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll go you again. I'll, it. I'll give you the, the lead cool. in. All good.